I think. So all of you are wearing green, correct? I had a bright green St. Louis Cardinals jersey I was going to wear this morning. And I decided discretion was the better part of valor because Mary was going to be here today and I better not wear that thing. So I'm here. All right, if you need a copy of God's Word, you can slip your hand up. And these gentlemen will be glad to give you one. My Tennessee fans have informed me we have to be done early. They got some kind of game they got to play at noon today. Noon today. And uh, so I've decided that that God wants us to stay all afternoon. (laughs) For those of us that are Memphis fans, we got nothing to do today. So, (laughs) Do what? I can't believe you said that. All right, turn to Acts chapter 13. I, I do want to thank you again, all of you, for your consistent faithfulness in giving. We're doing the, the help group again. Yesterday, we had over 300 families again that we were able to serve. It was a, a crazy day at the Bartley campus, but uh, many of you were actually there physically uh, working, and obviously your gifts make it possible for to continue to do that. It's just a uh, it's just an amazing uh, ministry God has turned that into, and you need to specifically pray for Chris Ellison as he deals with that. It, it is a full-time job just keeping up with that thing, and uh, Chris works about three full-time jobs, so he does a, uh, just a tremendous job. So you pray for him specifically in that arena because it's uh, dealing with the Mid-South Food Bank and everything else that goes along with that is not, uh, not easy to do, and we are their largest distributor uh, by far so it's uh i don't know how many tons chad may know i don't know how many tons of food we give away but it's uh it's a lot so plus you got the clothes clothes upstairs and they're still one o'clock i think they were still going through clothes and it's uh it's just a great ministry what god has done so thank you again for making that possible all right acts chapter 13 what we're going to do today is we're going to wrap up looking at paul's first recorded sermon it's really the only one that Luke records in great detail. Uh, the one other than Acts chapter 17 when he's at Mars Hill in, in Athens with the, the philosophers. And I think God in his sovereign wisdom is doing for us, showing for us how important it is that we communicate the gospel to those who think they've got it together, like the Jews. It's what's going on here primarily. And also those who are pagan and have no idea that they're lost, they have their own philosophies, and, and that we meet them where they are, and we interact with them about what they believe and where they're coming from, and talk to them. And uh, you see, both at Acts 17, you see Paul with the pagans, at, and here in Acts chapter 13, you see him at a synagogue with righteous, self-righteous, religious Jews and Gentile proselytes. And so, as we look at, we began looking at it last week, and you'll take your hand out. We look at Paul's first recorded sermon as part of us going through the book of Acts. And you begin to see, we talked about last week, remembering always that Acts is a book of history. So what you're seeing here in Acts chapter 13 primarily is the beginning of turning that last page in the Great Commission where Jesus said, go to the world. All the nations, the ends of the world, make learner followers disciples of me and I will be with you 
forever. So what you're seeing here is Paul's first missionary journey where they leave out from Antioch and Syria and they begin to take the gospel to the, all, to the Gentiles all over the world. And we specifically, again, talked about last week, we're at a place called Antioch of Pisidia. And God is working in history. We saw him working in the life of Paul. And we talked about, as he was sharing last week, what he had done with Israel. And now specifically we're looking at in Jesus so point number two on your handout is where we're going to jump in today and hang on. So let's go to chapter 13, verse 26. 13, 26. So as Paul continues his message, again, his first recorded sermon by Luke. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you, these two groups, the word of this salvation has been sent. So God's work in salvation is where we are on your handout. Point number two. Historically, we're seeing what God is doing in taking the gospel to the world. But specifically, in this word of exhortation that Paul is delivering at this synagogue on the Sabbath, he said, this is about salvation. The word of this salvation. So literally what Paul is saying is, my message to you today, my encouragement to you today is, number one, it's for all of you. Notice again verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, no question, that's Jews, and those among you who fear God. That was simply a, a way that the Jews were feared, uh, referred to Gentile proselytes, Gentiles who had come to the synagogue seeking Truth, seeking to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God, they were called those who fear God, respect and have all for God. So he's saying to both of you, and this will be a recurring theme throughout the life of Paul, when you read his epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, as you read, particularly Ephesians, which is about the church, the whole epistle, as you read his epistles, his letters that he wrote back to believers, one of his primary emphases in all his letters is that the church is both Jew and Gentile. That the church is neither male nor female. That the church is neither slave nor free. But we are one in Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And whether you came from a Jewish background who understood a lot of the things that he was referencing, or you're from a pagan background where you didn't, we're being brought together as one to understand that there's only one God, and his name is I Am. And he manifested himself, he came to earth, he was Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Christ, the anointed one. Christ for the pagans, Messiah for the Jews, same word, that he is the one who has come, that we might have life. So verse 26 again, those two groups, those among you who fear God and the Jews, to you, both groups, the word of this salvation has been sent. Now, starting in verse 27, what is this salvation? Verse 27, it begins with, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, Jesus of Nazareth, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him, Jesus of Nazareth, though they found no cause for death in him. They asked Pilate, a Roman, 
that he should, Jesus should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, Jesus, they took him, the Christ, down from the tree, they laid him in a tomb. Took him down, put him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. We'll get to that in a moment. All right. So, the word of this salvation, it says, it begins with the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, here's the one thing I want you to focus on as we walk through this today. Remember, historically, Acts is a book of history, the history of the early church. He's taken, they're taking the gospel from a Jewish thing at Jerusalem, and it's beginning to go all over the world. And the first recorded sermon, and the emphasis of that sermon, is the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand, here we are in 2019, and that has not changed. Our message, our call, our mandate on our lives and our life as the church of Jesus Christ is to tell people, he died for you. He was buried for you, but thank God he rose from the dead for you. He conquered sin and death so that the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from God, death, does not have to be an issue in your life. That's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. Doesn't have any sting has no fear in the life of a believer. And that, that's Paul's first recorded message, his word of exhortation in the Sabbath, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath, to Jews and Gentiles. And it begins with, the word of this salvation begins with the crucifixion of Jesus. And the first thing he says is that the Jewish leaders, notice how he puts it in verse 27, those who dwell in Jerusalem, their rulers, their leaders, they didn't even know Jesus. Or, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled those voices in condemning Jesus. They were just going through the motions. Here, here comes God himself in their midst. The Messiah proves himself over and over again to be God, and yet they missed it. He said every Sabbath they were coming together, just like we're doing here if Paul would say to them everything. He said, just like we did today, we came in, you read from the prophets. And then you said, anyone here have a word of exhortation? I got a word for you. Pay attention to what you're reading. Every Sabbath, you read the prophets. Those prophets were talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And you're reading every Sabbath, week after week after week, And yet, you missed the Christ. You missed your own Messiah because you were just going through religious motions, just going through the rote of showing up and doing your God thing. And in the midst of doing your God thing, you missed God. And so he's saying here is his word of exhortation. Jesus was in their midst. They missed him. They ignored him. And and even finally, they fulfilled the words of those very prophets, when they had Jesus crucified, they went to the Romans because they wouldn't do it. The Jews couldn't do it. So they go to the Romans and convince Pilate ultimately to have Jesus murdered. It's fascinating as you look through this because the Jews went to the Romans to have Jesus murdered by a Roman method of execution called crucifixion, 
Crucifixion was not even known to the Jews. It was not something that they did. They stoned people to death. So they get the Romans to kill him. The Romans kill him by crucifixion because it was the cruelest way man had invented to torture another man to death. And then you go back and you read Psalm 22. And you know what it describes in intimate detail in Psalm 22? Crucifixion. Literally what happens to the human body when it is crucified. God had the psalmist write about it hundreds of years prior to it happening that this is what was going to happen to the Messiah and the Jews didn't even know what crucifixion was. The hand of God. Paul's first recorded sermon is God is at work in history and in your lives and in your salvation. It begins with crucifixion and he fulfilled even the prophecy. Annas, Caiaphas, as you read through the Gospels, despite their evil and their intent just to get rid of Jesus, we've got to have him out dead. He's threatening our authority and our power. We've got to get rid of him. Even in the process of doing that, they were being used by Almighty God to fulfill the prophecy about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah. So the second thing, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Second point about your salvation, crucifixion, the death, the burial, but most important, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30 again. What's the first word in verse 30? Say it real loud. Don't, don't seem excited about that. We'll try it one more time. Real loud. But, those of you that have been around any length of time, what's my favorite word in the Bible? But, and here's why. Every time you see it, God is about to show you something really important. Man did his best and crucified the Son of God. But God did what? Verse 30, raised him from the dead. Give it your best shot. What had Jesus prophesied about his own self? Destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it up. Or destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They thought he was talking about the temple in Jerusalem. John clearly writes what? He was referring to his body. Go ahead and destroy it. Give it your best shot. I'm coming back from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. As we approach Easter, literally Passover, as we approach what we celebrate as believers in Jesus Christ, we talk about it every year, and churches all over the world will be celebrating it as well they should. But here's the point. Everything, not only in history, everything that we believe as Christians hinges on the fact he rose from the dead. If he did not rise from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15 we're still miserably in our sins, we're wasting our time, we're stupid, and people should laugh at us and pity us. I love 1 Corinthians 15, 20. What's the first word in 1 Corinthians 15, 20? Take a stab. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Other people have been raised from the dead. Lazarus, prime example. He died again. 
Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He didn't die again. He conquered sin and he conquered death. Paul's simple little word of exhortation in the synagogue on this Sabbath in Antioch of Pisidia was Christ died, but he rose from the dead. But God couldn't be stopped by the Annas and Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders. He couldn't be stopped by the Romans. <clears throat> he couldn't be stopped by death. And he couldn't be stopped by Satan. He rose from the dead, brought himself back physically. Look at verse 31. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. There were his witnesses to the people. And you know the story, seen by over 500 brethren at once and many others before he finally ascended, that he was back from the dead. Historically, that he had risen physically from the dead. Verse 32, we declare to you, I love this little phrase, we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. Glad tidings is an English word Saying what? Woo-wee! Good news! When we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what's the other thing we call it? The good news. That yes, he died, but he came back. And it's good news for every Jew, context we're looking at here, every Gentile, Jesus' resurrection was the fulfillment of the promise made to the fathers. Notice that in verse 32. Remember, he's in a Jewish synagogue. Paul is, we declare to you glad tidings, good news. That promise, which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. He's raised up Jesus. Jesus' resurrection, Paul is saying to the Jews and the Gentile proselytes there at that synagogue, It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy made to the fathers. Specifically, when you see the term the fathers in the Jewish context when he's talking to them, that would be the patriarchs. You had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and he has 12 sons. They're called the patriarchs. And he's saying all the great promises made to the patriarchs and then on down through history, through the prophets, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And by the way, the very first time that promise was made was in the Garden of Eden. After original sin, when God said to Satan, I will send the seed of the woman and he will crush your head. He's coming. He came. He died. He was buried. Verse 33, God raised him up. So what he's saying is the advent of Messiah into history. Notice the end of verse 33. It's really cool what's going on here. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. Hang on to that for a moment. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Quote, by the way, he's speaking in a Jewish synagogue. They just got through reading from the law and the prophets, and now he's quoting what? Their scriptures back to them. Really important. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, quoting again from the psalm, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So here's what he's saying in verse 33. So please hang with me. This is so so important to understand context of this passage in Scripture. In verse 33, 
when he says he raised up Jesus, right there he's not talking about his resurrection from the dead. All right? What he's talking about in that verse, he quotes, is that he raised up Jesus at a moment uh, in time, aorist tense in Greek, at a definite moment in time, he raised up Jesus to step into history to die for you. So verse 34, when he died, he could be raised from the dead. I tried to make that as confusing as I possibly could. So now look up here and let me try to make that a little more clear. All right. John 1.1 1, 1 says what? I know y'all haven't memorized. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That, in, that, in the beginning means before there was time and eternal existence, there was the Father, there was the Son, the word of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and then it goes on to talk about him being the creator and all. And then you get down to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In John 1.1, 1, 1, and I'm not doing this to him to confuse you, but it really makes the Bible just, ooh, I'm going to get goosebumps when I think about it. In the beginning, the tense of that was before there was time, there just was. What did God tell you his name was in Exodus 3.14? I am. I am. Always have been. Always will be. I'm same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm eternal. Only self-existent, eternal entity in the universe is God. So he said, but prior to anything else, there was God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about that in John 17. I won't chase another rabbit. All right, verse 14, John 1, 1, that tense is always has been. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's aorist tense. That means at a definite moment in time, like 1130 on St. Patrick's Day, 2019, it's a definite moment in time. At a definite moment in time, verse 14, that word that was eternal, self-existent one, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. He's always been the eternal son of God. At that moment in time, he stepped into history to be the son of man, the Messiah. That's what he's talking about here in that first raised up Jesus. Because they're Jews who they've been looking for their whole lives. Who are Jews who are not believers in Christ? Jesus still looking for today. When they celebrate Passover this year, what, who are they looking for? They send a child out in the street to say what? Is the Messiah coming this year? They're still looking. He's already come. That's why what we do is so important in sharing glad tidings. He's already come. So, at a definite moment in time, verse 33, he stepped into history to fulfill that promise. The crucifixion would come. So he steps into history, quotes Psalm 2, the son of man, the son of David, who Jesus is. Now verse 34, he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption or decay. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Jesus rose from the dead, as we mentioned a moment ago, never to die again. He did not decay. His body did not, you can't go to a tomb and see the skeleton of Jesus. You can see where the bones were because he rose from the dead. So verse 35, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. That's Psalm 16. He keeps, just a little side note, side, aside, very important. He's in a Jewish synagogue. He's on the Sabbath. They're reading scriptures. He's providing a word of exhortation about this 
salvation. And what's he quoting over and over and over again? What they believed. You see that? He's meeting them where they are, quoting their scriptures that they believe to say to them, these scriptures, Psalm 2, Psalm 16, on and on. They're talking about the Messiah, and Jesus of Nazareth was that Messiah. God raised him up in history, and he raised him up from the dead so that you can have salvation, so you can know God, so you can have eternal life. Now, verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep or died. He was buried with his fathers. Notice the next phrase, verse 36. David died, David was buried, and David did what? Saw corruption, or David decayed. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So the point is this. These, what David is writing in these Psalms cannot be referring to himself. Why? Because he saw corruption. He decayed. When Randy dies and you put my body in the grave and you go back and you dig me up a few months later, what are you going to see? Decaying bones. David had decaying bones, but Jesus didn't. Why? Because they put him in a tomb and he put a rock over it and on that Sunday morning, what did he do? He walked out of that tomb to say, grave has no victory here. Psalm, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible says this. You don't have to turn. It's that famous passage. David died. David sees corruption. Look what Paul writes. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Which you also received and in which you stand as saved, by which you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Christ, Messiah, died for our sins according to the scriptures. That would be the Old Testament. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Old Testament. Those scriptures prophesied his death, his burial, his resurrection, now, verse 34 again, where we are. He says, you're going to get the sure mercies of David. That was God's promise to David as the man after his own heart, the king of Israel. God's promise to David was that Messiah would be one of his descendants. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Bible says this. God speaking to David when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. He will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Part of the time he talks about Solomon. Now look at what he says. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house, your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Because I'm going to send the Messiah one of your descendants. Solomon's going to build the great temple, but Jesus is going to establish the kingdom forever. The Messiah will. What's the, when you think of Jesus, what are the three names he's known by? Son of God, Son of Man, and Son of David. When Jesus reigns in the eternal state, he sits on the throne of David. David was a type of Christ, but David was just a man. 
were studying David in my class at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and David was not perfect. Scripture is just honest, it's just real. David had problems, particularly in the arena of women. But he was a man after God's own heart. God used him, and one of his descendants would be, was, is, the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus came to die for the Jews, word of exhortation, but also for the Gentiles. By the way, how many of you are Gentile? I'd be pretty much most of us. Aren't you glad he died for you too? I am. Set me free. Came to die for the Jews. Came to die for the Gentiles. Let's go back to the Great Commission. Top of your outline. What are we talking about? Go where? To the nations. To the end of the world. Share this gospel with them. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's for everyone. Now, back to verse 38, the third point. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, Paul's preaching in the synagogue to the Jews and the Gentiles, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. By him, this man, Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Remember, he's talking to Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's just saying to them, you can't be saved by keeping the law of Moses. What do you think the whispers were going on? What do you think they ate for lunch that day? Now look at what, as he sums this up for them, he says, Jesus is crucified for you. Jesus rose from the dead so you could be set free. And here's what you get as a result. Justification. That's what you get. Verse 38, therefore, the little word therefore, may be my second favorite word in the Bible. What's my first? Second might be therefore. You're always going to see something really important. Therefore, because Jesus is the God-man, context, what he's been talking about. Because Jesus is the God-man, because Jesus is the Messiah, because Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death, He alone offers to you, verse 38, number one, forgiveness of sins. Verse 39, to everyone who believes in him, trusts in him, put your faith in him, you can have forgiveness of sins. Not by your works, not by your good looks, but by faith. For everyone who believes, and notice how he puts this, because this is really important, you can be justified from all things. Sin, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Look up here and hang with me for just a moment. This is really important. You've heard me talk many times about the three tenses of salvation. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Sanctification is the one we struggle with so much. Living out the Christian life. What he's talking about here. It's how you enter into a relationship with God that will carry you for the rest of your life and then after death into the presence of God with peace and hope and you never have to fear death. Jesus alone, because he is the God-man, he died, he was buried, and he rose again so you can be justified. Now hang with me, this is so important. 
Because so many people, even, even in churches, even in evangelical churches, even in churches that preach the Bible, so many people miss this simple point. You cannot be saved. He says it to them. Look right at them in a Jewish synagogue. It says, the law of Moses cannot save you. Because he, Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul, prior to his conversion, prior to his growing in his faith, he believed he was saved by works. He said so in Philippians. I was blameless when it came to the law. I didn't sin. You can't be any more arrogant before God. That's who he was. And God saved him and said, now take that message to the Gentiles that you cannot turn over a new leaf and be really good and get in. You can't give a ton of money to the church and to charity and get in. You can't do the mm, 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 best you can and get in. You have to come to God like the thief on the cross and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I believe you are Messiah. No one is going to stand before God. And that's what this is about. Justification. He declares you in right standing with him because of what Jesus did. No other reason. You put your faith in Christ, the work he performed at the cross, and rising from the dead, and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because I I can't be good enough. Can't be good enough. So he says, you could be justified from all things. In Romans chapter 4, Again, don't turn there. Listen closely. Paul writes these words to the church at Rome. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Old Testament, Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, or imputed to his account, charged Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. In other words, if you're trying to work yourself into the good graces of God so you could be saved by your works, all you're doing is mounting more debt because you're thinking your works are going to save you and they cannot. Paul goes on. To him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Your works will not get you saved but your faith will. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now he quotes Psalm 32, Old Testament. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That means atoned for. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Abraham's sins were forgiven because he had faith. Abraham lived 430 years before the law. God charged to his account righteousness because by faith he trusted God's. The Bible says in Galatians, God preached the gospel to Abraham. He believed it and he was saved. You believed you were born again in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the glad tidings, not your works, not how good you are, not how much you give, not how many times you go to church, but by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, you're born again, you're justified. Now hang with me because I 
This is so important. I hate to keep saying that, but it is. Number one, what does justification mean? Number one, it means your sins are forgiven. You are in right standing with God. You are his child. You're born again. You're adopted into the family. Put that aside. Maybe more importantly for us to understand as believers is number two, what does justification mean? It means that the integrity and the honor of who God is is preserved. That's what justification means. God, that God is a God of justice, that God is a God of truth. And if you miss everything else I say today, please get this. Here's what justification means. For me and you, it means our sins are forgiven. I'm in right standing with God. But our message of taking the gospel of the world, it means this. When God says he judges sin, he judges sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he became sin who knew no sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the what? Righteousness of God in him. Here's what that means. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he quoting? The Psalms. And he doesn't say father. What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why he says that? Because when he's dying on the cross, how many sins had he committed prior to that day? Not one, but yet he's dying for the sins of mankind. Because here's what God was doing. He took him who knew no sin and he made him the sin sacrifice so Randy could get saved. And you, that's good news, isn't it? And here's how he did it. That's what just, this is what justification means. God says somebody's got to pay for sin. In, that, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover it up, right? And what did God say? That ain't cutting it. Somebody's blood's got to be shed to cover your sin. And by the way, in Hebrew, that means atonement. So here's the deal. When Jesus is dying on the cross, God places on him my guilt. What I owe. Because I'm a sinner. He places that guilt on Jesus. And Jesus says, what? It is finished. You know what that means in Greek? That debt stamp paid in full. So you don't get saved because you're really good. You get saved because Jesus was really good. Perfect. The sin sacrifice. That's what justification is. God says, somebody's got to pay for this. And here's what God did. For God so loved the world that he gave the sin sacrifice. God says, somebody's going to pay for sin, and you know what? I'll pay for it. You ever felt like that as a parent? Your kid does something wrong, and they go, oh, I guess I, I got to pay for that. But see, that's not the way God did it. God said, I'll love those people who don't love me. I'll love those people who are in rebellion against me. I'll love those people who spit on me, mock me, even to this day who mock my name. I'm going to die in their place so they can be set free if they trust me. That's justification. You see a word, and you'll see it in the Bible, you see it in Hebrews, you'll see it other places, the word propitiation. It's just one of those words that's fun to say because it sounds cool coming out. Propitiation, you know what it means? 
It means satisfied God's demand for judgment. Jesus was our propitiation. God says somebody's got to pay. Jesus will pay. And so the third thing is we have full acceptance by God by trusting what Jesus did. Now, verse 40, as we wrap this up, it's an unbelievable act of grace. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, quoting again the Old Testament. I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe. The one will declare it to you. You read these verses, and you think, man, God is saying to them something cold and harsh. That's not the way this was intended. These are not intended as words of rebuke. It's Paul, in Paul's message here, they're intended as words of sadness. Here's what he's saying. Week after week after week, you come to synagogue, you read the scriptures. God's grace is all over. He's saying, I love you. Here, I'll save you. You hear these words of grace and mercy and love, and you reject them week after week after week. Yet God keeps showing you grace, keeps showing you mercy, keep extending a, hand of, extending a hand of love to you, and yet you turn your back on him, you reject him over and over and over again. And a dear friend, a man that, that mentored me, and I may have shared this with you before, so forgive me if I have, who mentored me as a young man, taught me so much, and he died a couple of years ago. And I loved Wayne Barber with, all my heart taught me so much. And he's such a great guy. And one of I only got to see him a few times, but so many videos that I saw. And one thing he said, I'll never forget. He said, I was in the ministry on a church staff 10 years before I got saved. Just going through the motions, doing the legalism, preaching, working, doing my religious thing, but not born again. Because what was I counting on? What I did, not what Jesus did. What is grace? It's God giving you something you don't deserve. He gave you salvation. What was Paul's encouraging word to them? Salvation. Unbelievable act of grace. He quotes the prophet Habakkuk. And the theme of the entire Bible is in the book of Habakkuk where it says the righteous shall live by faith. So finally, we'll hit this in about two minutes. God's work in sovereignty. Look at verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and the devout proselytes, the Gentiles, followed Paul and Barnabas, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. In both the Jews and the Gentiles, and then an entire city, God was at work. Notice, they begged him. Paul. This was a word of exhortation so it was brief, unlike my sermon. It was brief. And when they left there, 
What were they saying? I know this is what you do when you leave. What were they saying to Paul as he left? We want to hear some more. We want to hear some more. Would you please come back next week and expound further on this? Got their attention, didn't he? The Holy Spirit was at work. He said, please come back. Now look at verse 45. When the Jews, that's the leaders, saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Why are they envious? Because the multitudes are following Paul, who had just shared with them a word of exhortation about salvation. Contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Despite jealousy and despite opposition, verse 46, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And then he quotes Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. Over and over he quotes them. Verse 50, the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women. See, they had to go to the women to get them. That's what they had. Devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, they raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. What's the next word in your Bible? But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they came to Iconium. They moved on despite the persecution. Verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So as we wrap up our time together today, we'll get ready to share together the Lord's Supper. I hope you've had a word of exhortation, how special your salvation is. We're going to physically celebrate it here in a moment. The blood and the body of Jesus Christ. That is good news. Everything we do flows from that good news. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, as we...